I stand up here this morning, I was thinking about this today, and I've been more and more, more and more made aware. I think of what Paul means when he says the foolishness of preaching. It almost seems like a foolish task. When we are here to proclaim the good news of a God whose kindness toward us is of such that it is not compatible with our natural mind. It's not compatible with our understanding. So what do we do? We begin to bring our understanding into it. And then we hear the purity of a gospel that speaks of only him and declares his sufficiency in the light of our weaknesses. And that is a reality that continues and perpetuates. And yet those who hear it are often balk at it. And even those of us who preach it at times look at it and say, that can't be that, it can't be that simple. It can't be that good, <laughs> you know, to some degree. Which is why the necessity of continually seeing Jesus and continually knowing so that he can make known something that natural words coming out of natural men can't. The natural words coming out of natural men needs to be the truth according to Scripture and the truth that is being made known in their hearts. That is absolutely true. That's missing in most of the church today. But on top of the gospel being preached, we need to have the gospel being made known in the soul. I am brought back to remember when they were rebuilding the city, and I think it was Ezra and Nehemiah 1, they they began to read the law out into the public and the congregation. And that was great. They built the pulpit and they were reading the law in their hearing and declaring to them a law that they were no longer aware of, that had been lost basically in their midst. of Declaring Christ, you could say, when they're declaring the law. But he also sent people within the congregation who was hearing it read out loud and they would bring in and it says, and they were there to make known what was being spoken. I take it back to what Paul says. We preach him, but God would make him known. So in the midst of the foolishness of preaching. And why is it the foolishness of preaching? Well, the fact is, we're not here to tell you how, we're here to tell you who. That's what the gospel is about. We're not telling you how to live it. We're telling you you can't. But we're telling you who is. Whose life, whose righteousness, whose holiness, all the things that religion tries to tell you you can be and attain and work hard enough and labor hard enough and you'll get there I'm telling you, it got there when it got to you. The reality of righteousness came fully when Christ came into you. And that's what I mean. We're not here to tell you how to live the Christ life. That's an absurd, that's an absurd sentence. How do you live the Christ life? It's called the Christ life for a reason. And that's not even a scriptural term, but let's use that phrase. I'm not here to teach you how to live the life that is uh, of God. I'm not here to look at you and judge you and say, you can't live this or you're not up to this yet. You're not living this quite yet. 
Guess what? It's never going to happen. And the people who think they have arrived, you need to repent. <laughs> if it's about you and what you do. I'm not here to tell you how to live the in just language that we know. And this true language, the crucified life. I'm not here to teach you how to live it. Christ lives in you. No instruction can make that more certain than it is. God has to make known in your soul the absoluteness of what he wrought in it. If you read in the context of what, and this is not what I'm going, this is just what's been on my mind this morning. Uh, in the context of where Paul says that statement, the foolishness of preaching is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says, For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Why is it foolishness? The preaching, the gospel you're preaching, that we're preaching is not foolish. It's foolishness to those who hear it. Because look who, look who he's talking about. Uh, the Jews require a sign. That's the next verse. Why is it foolishness to them? Because they want a miracle. That's what the word sign means. They want a manifestation like God did under the old covenant. The Jews are still looking for that. That's what's going to prove it to them. Well, guess what? Christians are the same. Christians want to see externals and signs and evidences and proofs. And all of those proofs and evidences, they come and go. And that means they are transient at best. Problem is, when we're wanting that to be the constant proof and evidence of reality, the only constant proof and evidence of reality is Christ in you. And that's the need to understand the presence of Jesus, not the presence of these proofs and evidences and miraculous healings and miraculous works and things like that. The miracle took place. And the, and the Greeks, he said, they look for wisdom. What wisdom? Not the wisdom of God, the wisdom that is man's wisdom. The, man, the, the wisdom, intellectualism, the understanding that proceeds out of man and is therefore familiar to me. The wisdom that would tell a man that if he's going to be closer to God, he's got to do this and do that. And we've split this up. Christianity is split between those, basically those two camps. Some that look for externals and some who just want intellectual stimulation. Some who want just to be inspired. And others who want to be touched in some way, you know, spiritually. And the foolishness of preaching runs in contradiction to both of those expectations of being. They want to tell you how to live it. They want, to, they want you to you know, produce all of these manifestations. They want to tell you how to live the life so that they can be a full reflection. Let me tell you something. We've come to a life that there is no natural reflection of. Divine reality that is defined in the person of Jesus has no natural reflection. 
That's old covenant. There's your reflection if you want one. Now we stand before the face of the one that that reflected. And all that to say, the foolishness of preaching is necessary, but it's still to some foolish. Because we proclaim Jesus and nothing else. We proclaim Christ sufficient and not ourselves. And that flies in the face of man. But it liberates the soul of those who are desperate. Those who have not looked at themselves and say, I've arrived. It actually calls the desperate ones to him and says, I can't do this anymore. Because that's where we all are, whether we know it or not, guys. That's where we are. That's where man is. That's his state. Before he is born again, his state is you can't do it, you never will, it's not possible. So what do we do? We cry out for one who makes it so. Not makes it possible, makes it so. He performs it, not gives the possibility of it, he performs it in you. That's salvation. That's salvation. That's who he is in you. It's complete. That's the simplicity and purity of gospel that we preach. And the moment we put something else in the way and say, here's another hurdle for you to jump over, here's another obstacle for you to peek around, we have done a disservice to the purity of the gospel that says he is all and in all. Again, I'm not here to tell you how, I'm here to tell you who. And that's all I can do. And I can pray based upon that simple, pure directive. I can pray for God to show you the one I'm declaring to you. I can pray for your soul to be flooded with this light that sees beyond the wisdom of men and sees something beyond the miracles wrought. My prayer for all of us, those listening here, those here, the whole body of Christ, is that we would once again be captured by the purity of the gospel. That we would fall in love with the simplicity of salvation. And just stop trying to complicate it with ourselves. Because that's the complication. The moment you add me into the equation in any productive way, or in any way that God is expecting of, you have corrupted the picture. May we fall in love with the simplicity of Jesus Christ living in us. Now, I'll get off my soapbox. But I think that's true. Because look at the context, guys. Here's the foolishness of preaching. Why? Because it falls in the face of... It flies within the face of man's wisdom because here's the purity of the gospel being preached. Here's the truth of it, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Of him are you in Christ who has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory only in the Lord. And that's the point. Is the gospel we preach leaving no room for man's glory in himself. 
for him to be able to look at himself, assess himself and say, I think I've done it. I think I've got it. I think I've arrived by my works, by whatever. I'm not, this is not bothering me now. And I've really arrived at it. Listen, whether it bothers you or not, it is not, that doesn't mean a thing. It's hard for people to get that because we've been all trained, almost brainwashed to the point where we think that if this particular thing touches us in any way, we haven't yet arrived at the spiritual ascendancy that we're supposed to. God came to dead people. He came to weak, earthen vessels. That's the context of this, isn't it? He chose the nothing. He chose the weak. He chose those who are not of great standing. And none of us want to get up and say, that's me. Thank you, Jesus. We want something as with the garden to make us wise. And what I found out is that when Abraham and Sarah were finally capable of bringing Isaac into being as promised of God, it wasn't because they had the ability to do it. God did it. And you know something else I found? that there is no scriptural proof that after that was done and after Isaac came on the scene, that they were able from that moment on to produce more. You know what that means? They were still barren and dead in their body. That's amazing, isn't it? We think it it would allow them to be able to do it. No, it's God did it and that was it. They're still dead in their flesh. They're still barren in their womb. They're still weakened as they were. God just had to override and overcome the weaknesses. And that's what he did. That's what salvation's all about. Your weakness is ever present. But the sufficiency of Christ is also ever present. And that's greater than you. So, Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to go back in our study here of Ephesians. And there was a port, when I did the class from my house a couple of weeks ago, I started looking at how this corresponds to, um, if I can find Ephesians, there it is, um, Ezekiel 37, when you begin to look at the beginning of chapter 2, you who were dead in sin, hath he quickened there, as you can tell if your Bible has the italics, the italics is there, hath he quickened. That's actually not there in the first verse. That's been added. I think it's been added to kind of give you some hope when you're reading the hopeless situation that first first, first few verses actually point out. So he says, you who were dead in trespasses and sin. And I took that back to Ezekiel 37 where he, he shows him these dead dry bones. He says, this is the house of Israel. Well, can these bones live again? Of course, he says, only you know, Lord, because he's, he's smart enough to realize this is kind of out of my wheelhouse and out of my depth. I don't know. Only you do. And... I got into the first portion of it, but the second portion of it I I failed to get into in this lesson because I forgot, actually, that I had not touched on that second part of Ephesians. However, it goes better with the 
last part of chapter 2 of Ephesians anyway, when you see in Ezekiel 37 him taking two sticks, writing the names of two kingdoms, basically, that Israel had been split into, and he puts them together in his hand as one. This is actually what Ephesians 2 is talking about, uh, the latter parts, but we'll get into that as we go. But I want to read uh, verses 4 through 9 here in, in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, who is rich in mercy, now this is after he's just said all of this. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You lived according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. And you were by nature the children of wrath, fulfilling the desires of your flesh and of your mind. And then he says, but God. Why? Because that's the only hope you had. I always like the places where he says, but God. Because it gives us understanding that this, this situation cried out for God's mercy to be extended to us, for his kindness to actually come to us. When judgment was already upon us, as Jesus says, I didn't, you know, I'm not come here to, to condemn them. Why? Because they're condemned already. They're condemned already because they're not believing in me. They haven't come to me to receive a life that has no condemnation attached to it. They're condemned already. So this is who he's addressing here, the dead, the, king, the, the condemned, but God, who is rich in mercy, abundant in kindness. For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins. Listen to that phrase. Even when we were dead in sin, quickened us. You see, we didn't climb out of it enough to say, here I am, Lord. You know, get out of sin enough, get out of the pit long enough for him to see us. Like we're throwing these grenades out so the plane flying ahead can come. No, he came into the midst of that and he saved us while we were in it. While we were yet weak, Romans 3 says, he died for the ungodly. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are you saved. And he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Now let me just, I'm going to stop there. Uh, that's as far as we go if we can get that far. But I've stated multiple times when I've been doing these um, lessons that we have to understand the, the whole approach of this in my heart because I'm looking, there's a lot of prophecies and promises that these verses tackle and show because he's, he's about to show how the Jew and the Gentile are brought into one body. And in so being, they're brought into one, under one headship, as he's already said in the first chapter, which also means that they have all come to the inheritance that was promised to Israel in that one body, in that new man, in that risen son. So all of this is pertaining to the receiving in spiritual fullness the promises, the promises, the prophecies all fulfilled. 
And while we're still looking for all of that to happen, Paul is describing salvation as being that reality. Blessed with all spiritual blessings is just that. It is being blessed with every reality, every blessing God promised, the blessings of Abraham. All of the blessings promised now in spirit and truth, not in external shadows and testimony, but in spirit, fulfilled, wrought in the heart as, a, as an absolute, not just a promise yet to be fulfilled. I feel for those who still think that 90% of salvation and all the good stuff is yet to be. But there are souls in that condition. There are people, not in that condition, but in that mindset. There's people who actually believe that. Why? Because again, self-assessment, understanding of the natural mind. When approaching a spiritual reality that is not of men, the natural mind still approach it with man in view and through the filter of humanity. So we miss the whole mercy here, <laughs> the whole work of the kindness of God here. But we have to understand that our salvation is actually the point where the totality of God's everlasting intention and will came to us and came to our soul. Our soul is partaking of his perfect, divine, preordained will in its fulfillment. Now we got a that's a that's eternity to chew on, just that statement. To understand that the moment Christ came to live in my soul, the totality of God's intent came to dwell there. Lo, I come. And in the volume of the book is written about me. To do thy will, O God. That's who lives in us, the one who filled it up and filled it full. You know, I, I go back to Matthew 5 quite a bit, but that's what he says, right? I didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets. I came to fill it up, fill it full. Where it's no longer an empty container testifying of something, it is filled to the brim with the fullness of the one of whom it testified. That's who I am. I've come to fill it up, to fill it full, to bring it into its absolute intention. And men still trying to be like Jesus and be like God, take the whole chapter, especially the first part, the Beatitudes, and they think that's the way we're supposed to be. That's how we're supposed to live. No, it's not. It's him declaring to them, blessed are you who are mourning. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, because he knew who he's coming to are people who were poor in spirit. He knew he was coming to people when it came to spiritual matters were entirely bankrupt. He's coming to those who are mourning in Zion because their promise has yet to be fulfilled. And all the things, read them all. Go through them. I did several sessions through it. And it was to convince me that he's not telling you how to live. He's telling you there's a life that's now arrived on the scene that fulfills the hopes of those who are under a system of condemnation. So blessed be you who are now, who are poor in spirit, for you shall receive the kingdom. Why? Because he's come as that kingdom. And then throughout the whole thing, he's telling them, you know, you've heard it said, and, but I say unto you. That's the whole thing. It's telling you you can't live this. 
But it's declaring, I'm going to live this in you. This is not just you not doing bad things. This is a life and a nature that's going to live in you that can't conceive the thought of such evil. That's beyond us, I would say. And then he even brings it down to a more narrow point at the end of chapter 5 and says, so here's the whole deal. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I'll wait. Right? You don't want to say, I'll wait. Do that. But he's not telling them to do that. He's telling them, this is what the law is telling you. This is what the law is always pointing to. This is why the law said didn't say you shall not. It said you cannot because it was declaring to them the son that was clothing them with that law. Under that garment, you cannot. Why? Because he lives. And he's the one that determines the state of the soul in the midst of the weakness of the one in whom he's determining it. Thank you, Jesus. The grace of God is wonderful. We don't even, we haven't even scratched it. (laughs) This is the one who is rich in mercy, who has come to us in this way. So what we have received is God's kind intent, his predetermined and preordained purpose fulfilled. And that's what he says here, in having made known unto us the mystery of his will. How did he make it known? He brought it into my soul. According to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ. Isn't that what he's about to say? Gathered us together and made us sit together in heavenly places. This is the gathering, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. That's again the Jew and the Gentile being spoken of there. He's brought them both into one, under one headship, one one, uh, translation will say. But the richness of his mercy, I want us to look at that for a moment. And where has that mercy and kindness brought us? In Exodus chapter 15, we're going to read verse 13 through verse 17. And listen to these words. These are just, it's just beautiful. And what you're reading in in the second chapter of Ephesians is actually the fulfillment of these words. This is why Paul, or the Hebrew writer, can say in Hebrews 12, you are come to Mount Zion. Here's the mountain he's about to bring them to. Here's the mountain that he says you've come to. And it's actually called heavenly places in Ephesians 2. Heaven itself in Hebrews. I'm going to read the first part in the King James because it uses the word mercy. Thou in thy mercy, again, Exodus 15, 13. Thou in thy mercy hast led forth the people which you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength unto your holy habitation. He uses the word mercy. This is that mercy that Ephesians 2 is talking about. A people enslaved in the midst of death. But what did God do? He provided a lamb for them. He brought forth a lamb that would free them, liberate them by the shed blood of that lamb in Goshen. 
That was his mercy extended to them. You have led them, this is from the English Standard Version, verse 13, Exodus 15. You have led them in your steadfast love. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard and they tremble. Pains have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. <laughs> Not a good day for these guys. Why? Because he's bringing forth a new creation. He's bringing forth a kingdom that's greater than these. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? This is the arm of the Lord being revealed here in their midst. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. Whose does this belong to? That's the thing. This is beautiful. It's, it's you're bringing them to your house. In my Father's house are many mansions. We're seeing the same thing here. Remember what he says to them also in Exodus where he says, you see what I did. You saw what I did to the Egyptians. How I brought you out on eagle's wings unto myself. That's exactly what this is talking about. But look where it brought them. Into your own mountain. The place, O oh Lord, which you have made for your abode the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. So when Paul says, by grace you are saved, and he has gathered us and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, this is what he's talking about. A people redeemed, a people who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, Brought not only to just out of Egypt, but brought into the very habitation of God himself. The place where he abides. The place where he is satisfied. Where he sits down having accomplished his purpose. That's where we are. We're not climbing up the rough side of the mountain. That used to be a song. Or it still is. I used to play that song with a group that I played the drums for. And boy, those people would shout. The singer in that group, buddy, he was getting down. He was like a soul brother, white as cotton, but like a soul brother you had never seen. He was awesome. But he could sing that song. He'd tear it up. Those people would be shouting all over that place. And I would always think, why are they shouting about going up a rough side of a mountain? And the last part of the course is I'm doing my best to make it in. That's a real shouting song. That's a condemning song if you ask me. That's ridiculous to shout about that. I'm telling you, you are come to this mountain. To the top of it. To the place God himself abides. How do you do that? In his beloved son. So we see the basis of Paul's prayer in this in Exodus 15. Desire that the Ephesians would come to know the divine dimensions of the love of God that has done such, the mercy and love, steadfast love of God that would, uh, the kindness of God, right? Where he says in Ephesians, 
that you may know the length, the breadth, the depth, and the height of the love of God. This is the love he's talking about, the love that guided you in God's strength to the place of his habitation. Wow, that's love. That's mercy. And he also talks about, in, after the verses we're in right now, so that the kindness of God he would make manifest throughout the successive ages the kindness that he has shown to us. Why? Because it's going to take all of that to actually make known to us the dimension and the fullness of the kindness that has been extended toward these weak, fragile vessels. redemption that has brought us to his habitation to the place that he himself has established the word mercy there kindness love it's all used interchangeably that's why I use both translation because it really is and in this verse you see the parallel of the statement in Ephesians you see the testimonial picture that Paul is referring to but now realized in this spiritual transaction of new birth of being in Christ and state for those who are born of God the kindness and abounding mercy of God has been shown to us, or as it's written in this verse, or in, in Ephesians, His great love wherewith He loved us. Same thing. Brought you out of death and bondage and slavery into the very Son of His love. Brought you from one kingdom that governed you and kept you in sin and death and brought you into another governing power under the rules and headship, and sovereignty, and that's one thing we miss, sovereignty of his rule. And the sovereignty of his rule means no other rules and no other constitutions. Once you get into that kingdom, no other law matters. No other law applies. The law of life now applies. The word here, lead and guide, it says you will guide them in your strength. The word there is actually to give to them rest, to lead them into a place of rest or to guide them to a watering place where they can be refreshed and find water. That's the Nahal 5093 in the Strongs, if you want to look it up. It means to guide them to a watering place, a place of rest. A goal, it even means. And this guiding toward that place of his habitation was all according to the power and strength of God. There's the whole thing. It's of God and not of us. It is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight, especially those of who finally see it. It might not be very marvelous to those who just hear about it, but don't get me wrong, it's just as marvelous. When your soul is in Christ and you are brought to this place, it is marvelous whether you are cognizant of how marvelous it is or not. It's how marvelous it is that gives you the liberty to be able to know it or not and gives him the cause to say, just come and see. It's that good. It's that good. That even when you're ignorant of it, it's your state of being. But he's always saying, come and see this. I want to show you my kindness towards you. I want to show you my strength and my power has performed. That way, you won't be victim to someone telling you you have to exert your strength and your power to get it done. So you read 
The same thing, right? God's rich mercy. His great love wherewith he loved us when we were dead, slaves, in bondage, has quickened us together with him. Made us sit together in heavenly places. That's, that's the same. That's, that's Ezekiel 15. This is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who have believed. This is the fulfillment, again, of the picture found there in Ezekiel. God has raised one son up by his power. He has exercised that power to usward who believe. In, and in, in so doing, brings us into the one body, the one living body, the one church that is now dead to that sin and free from the enslavement of it and the bondage of it. See, the grace and kindness of God, I can say it this way, the grace and kindness of God has actually ushered the soul of the believer into the realm that is off limits to them. That's good news. The Holy of Holies was off limits to anybody but one man. That's a picture of heaven itself. The second tabernacle, the one that he would go into, and he's passed into heaven itself. That's what Hebrews, uh, how they use the terminology of it. But it's talking about heaven. It's talking about the very place that the grace of God brings us into. But here's the thing. It's off limits to you and me. Souls of our feet couldn't f be found in that place for anything. You know why? Because we'd be struck dead immediately. Uzziah just tried to peek inside, and he was struck with leprosy. Why? It's off limits to you. But God, by his mercy, has brought us into a place that is unavailable to us. He has brought us to a light that is unapproachable. Isn't that what the scripture says? Yes, the light of the glory of God that lights that place, lights heaven itself. That's unapproachable for me. It's not just it's so bright that I can't approach it. It's that it's God himself and I can't approach that. In me, there is no strength or ability to get there. It's off limits to me. It's a police ribbon saying, don't cross, right? But the grace and mercy of God has allowed this, not this body, but the soul that has believed in the one who is able to go into that place. And not only is able to go there, but goes there accepted, goes there beloved, goes there as the intention of God fulfilled, as Hebrews 9 says, standing there before God's face for us in heaven itself, in the holiest of all. That's, that's how it's happened. We didn't get there on our own, and you, st you don't stay there on your own. It is of God. God got you here. God keeps you here. What's our part? Abide. Continue where you are. So this is the picture of the one that goes once and for all and is accepted therein, becoming the acceptance of the whole. That's what the high priest was. They didn't lose out. They were found in one. They were accepted in one. And when that one showed himself to them, guess what? They knew that they were accepted in that one by God. But guess what? 
before He showed Himself to them, God knew they were accepted in the one. And that's part of knowing as we are known. That's, that's where that comes in. And so they're accepted because the one's accepted. And his acceptance becomes the acceptance of the whole of the nation. Therein should bring us a little more clarity of what of the sufficiency and the weightiness of the statement accepted in the beloved. That's a grace and mercy that doesn't have measure to it. That is wonderful. In Zechariah chapter 10, there's another picture, much, much, like, much like Exodus 15. Zechariah 10 says in verse 6, I will strengthen the house of Judah. I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them again to the place or again, to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off. For I am the Lord their God, and will heal them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their hearts shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall, shall see it and be glad, and their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them, and I will gather them. For I have redeemed them, and they shall increase as they have increased. And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. Now, what is this, what is this about? This is about the restoration of a nation. God bringing them and having mercy upon them. This was a statement of their being perfectly restored to their privileges as a people, right? But there's one way that they can be restored, and that is mercy. I will have mercy upon them, and they and it shall be as though they had not been cast off. Now, he goes on, I'm reading this out of a commentary here. It says, they shall be restored to the possession of their place, of their land. This was fulfilled. Now listen to this, because so many are still waiting for them to be fulfilled, this to be fulfilled when they get their land back. Israel, a nation. Listen to what this commentary says. Uh, this is, uh, I think it's Matthew Henry's commentary. And it, uh, it shocked me that he said this. He says, this, this prophecy will be restored when they come back to, God restores their ancient privileges and when they possess their own land. And then he says, however, this was fulfilled when the children of God that were scattered abroad by faith in Christ were incorporated into the church, the body, and the Jew and the Gentile became one fold under one shepherd. You hear that? He's not saying this will one day be fulfilled. He's saying this is fulfilled in Christ. This is fulfilled in the body, in the church. Why? Because this is where you come to the place I promised you. This is where you come to the land there, wherein you possess the inheritance promise. I mean, it's all over Ephesians, in whom we have an inheritance. 
in whom we have an inheritance. That's the picture here. I mean, it, it, it perfectly fulfills what John 10 says when he speaks of himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and are known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. And they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold with one shepherd. So what does he do to call? Basically, he calls all men unto himself, not just the Jew, but the Gentiles as well. I mean, we read that throughout. So what is this hissing for them? I hiss for them. That's a, that's a strange statement. Well, it goes right back to the shepherd. The shepherd used to hiss or whistle, they call it. Whistle for the, for the sheep to be gathered to him. And he would whistle so that they would come from all over the place and come to him so that he could feed them or nourish them or protect them, how, whatever was the necessity. He would bring them to himself, and he'd do so by whistling. That's what, that's what he's talking about. He called them. He whistled. He hissed for them to come unto him. He says, as the shepherd with his pipe calls his sheep together, who knows the sound, so I will gather them. I will preach the gospel to them, declare myself to them, so that the souls would come. I will gather them, for I have redeemed them. And here's Here's, uh, he keeps on going. So it has its spiritual accomplishment in the gathering of the souls out of the bondage worse than the bondage of Egypt or Assyria and the bringing them into the glorious liberties of the children of God in Christ. There's the fulfillment. And, and this is what I'm just trying to say. What we've come to is the fulfillment. It's not a separate fulfillment for Gentiles. It is everything God promised to the Jew and the Gentile. Everything God intended our salvation accomplishes and brings into the soul in its perfect spiritual conclusion. That's salvation, not secondary things or uh, futuristic events or more happenings that have to come. Stay tuned for more. None of that. There's no to be continued. No cliffhangers. No sequels. Christ all in all. That sounds too simple to some, but that's the pure simplicity of the gospel. That's the pure simplicity of your salvation. It is Christ and not yourself. It doesn't preach well in the midst of people who have some kind of a spiritual ambition. But those who understand their ambition is foolishness in the sight of God, it is good news. Then we have Isaiah chapter 11. I'm just trying to show some of these prophecies that would gather together, made to sit together in heaven has brought us. And this, there's much more to this, but Isaiah 11, and I'll kind of conclude with this. Verse 10, In that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand. The word stand there is very most closely related to the word resurrection, if you look it up. 
which shall stand for an ensign of the people, and to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And he shall set up an ensign for the nation and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together to the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. What is an ensign to begin with? You see this, him talk about this a little more in depth in, uh, I think it's Numbers chapter 2, but the ensigns were these banners, basically, these banners that were flying over the tribes of Israel. And each, each tribe had their own ensign. But on each side of the tabernacle, there were actually one standard that stood for the whole of that particular group of people. Uh, I forget now exactly the names, uh, but anyway there were four standards that were the predominant standards around the tabernacle, and they were called ensigns. It's the four faces you see in Ezekiel were the four faces and four emblems that were on the four major ensigns around the tabernacle. If you want to go search that out, that's, that's a beautiful study. But he's saying that in the resurrection, in the one, the root of Jesse who would stand he would be an ensign. He would be the banner because around that banner is where they gathered. This is where they gathered. And this was the ensign that identified them as a nation, as a tribe, as a people. That was their name. That was their identity. There, therein is the beauty of the words, right? His banner, his ensign over us is what? Love. There's the defining of his body. So he will be an ensign, and to him the Gentiles will gather, and also the dispersed of Judah and the outcasts of Israel. They're all going to gather to this one banner, to this one place that will identify them. The beautiful part is when you see the high priest, he has these stones upon his breast, the breastplate of judgment. And it's beautiful to understand that the stones corresponded to one of those banners. Each stone corresponds to a banner that flew over the 12 tribes. Another in, interesting fact, and just beautiful how God orchestrated all this, of course, is that the color of the banner and the color of the stone were the same. The intricate details that God just uses to perfectly show how he knows these people how he is going to relate to these people. Because what you're seeing is a whole gathering of, a, of what? Hundreds of thousands, millions of people. A whole gathering of the people now condensed into the breast of one man in whom they are known. And that's what this ensign that God is prophesying of is this is that one into whom all the nations shall be gathered and his rest shall be what glorious hebrew actually says his rest shall be glory this is the glory in which we arrest and abide this is the glory that was off limits to man this is the glory that he is in you christ in you the glory hope for man couldn't touch it attain it even hope toward it but Christ came in as that 
unexpected glory into the soul of men and brought them into such a place of identification, just like the banners over Israel. He identifies us in the sight of God. What a wonderful understanding of not I, but Christ. That I don't stand up there, jump up and down and say, do you know me yet, God? (laughs) Have I done enough to get your attention? That was me. Have I done enough to get your attention? And the answer was no. Because you can't do enough to get his attention. Because his attention is fixed upon the one who is your life. His gaze is set right there and won't move. The kindness of God, however, is to bring you into the one in whose face his gaze is forever set. So that we are known and related to in that way and no other way. By grace are you saved. Can you see any other more beautiful statement than that? Showing that? This is the grace of God that has brought us into heaven itself, into the very place of God's abode, into his habitation. And those of us who have been gathered to him, God calls us not to live the Christian life, but to see the life of Christ who lives in us. Not to try to be like him, but to know the one who is our life. When any man tries to teach you how and disregards pointing you to the who, that is not the gospel at all. Run. (laughs) Fast. So, Father, we thank you for your grace, for the rich, abounding mercy that has been exercised towards us, the power that you have exerted toward us in the midst of the powerlessness that we live in, in our weakness, We boast that your strength is sufficient. Your grace is sufficient. And we live with our feet firmly planted upon that ground and boast only in your greatness and the greatness of the grace you have shown to us. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see just what you have wrought and may enjoy without obstacle, without obstruction, the manifest glory of your great salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys.